if the rates are increasing and you have a floating rate, then you need to make sure that the operator knows what to do when that happens. What kind of backstop do you have? What kind of plan do you have in place to battle rising interest rates. If you're a residential real estate agent earning $200,000 a year and you want to grow your passive income, this show's for you. Learn the secrets other agents use and hear from experts in our field in order to guide you along your journey to investing in assets like apartment communities so that you can turn your commissions into cash flow. I'm Randall DeCleared. Let's go, baby. All right. Welcome back. I'm glad to have you here today. We're going to continue on our syndication series part two momentarily, but I just want to high level discuss some of the conversations I've been having recently with some of the guests who are going to come out in future episodes. Had two really good conversations today, one with an investor and one with a real estate broker, top producer out of the Alabama market. And in each, there were some commonalities that I picked up on in these conversations And one was how to de-risk either your first investment or learning about investing or just basically de-risking your strategies. One was a commercial real estate loan officer back in the day. And he talks about how he was able to learn what other investors and developers and people were doing. One, he was doing the loans on the properties, right? Operating is a totally different story. He learned a ton once he started doing the operation side. But he was able to see and get line of sight on how deals were structured and how deals were working, how to underwrite deals. And so that helped him tremendously when he started his investing career. On the other side, you got a broker. So we start talking about investing. And I said, well, your agents and your team, do they invest? And he said, well, a lot of them are getting started. And what their strategy or what they're trying to do is find investors who they can work with, who are implementing a certain strategy that they may be interested in. And then they will learn everything they can for free, right? They're getting paid to learn that. So if they're working with that investor and that investor is going out buying and flipping houses and they're their agents for the deal, then they're able to learn how to flip a house for free, essentially, if they raise their hand and say, hey, I really love what you're doing. I want to know more. If I can just kind of be a fly on the wall while you're doing this entire process, one, it'll help me be a better agent for you to find you more deals. Two, I can learn this process as well. And maybe in the future, I can do my own rehab. And if you have the right investor or the right partner or the right client who's willing to let you be that fly on the wall, then it's a huge opportunity for you to go out for free and get paid for it, learn that business so that you can then go implement that strategy and start investing in properties yourself. It's the same thing with syndications and with funds, right? You can get into deals either by investing as a limited partner And then you learn how those operators operate those assets and buy them, take them down, how they communicate, all the different things. That's one easy way for you to get into it. And then if you want to go and raise capital for those deals, or you want to be an integral part to a team who is operating a big apartment community, then you just raise your hand and say, hey, I really want to learn how to do that. How do I get in on the general partnership team? And then what roles can I fit in that you guys have where I can come in and do that? And there are plenty of operators who are looking for people to either raise capital with them, to bring them on as a key principal, if you have the balance sheet to be able to sign on the debt, do other things. So huge opportunities to de-risk your future investing strategies if you are able to implement those strategies. I found it, the two is some of the best conversations I've had in a while, just chatting with these guys about what they're working on. 
We're going to continue our series on questions you should ask syndicators. That's coming up next. If you're getting value out of the show, by all means, jump in and rate and review. It helps us out a ton. It's great to have you here. I love our conversations. I love that you're joining me with this and on this journey with me. So without further ado, let's jump into the syndication part two. Here we go. All right. Welcome back. Really excited for this week. We're going to continue on with our series asking questions about how syndications work or working with a syndicator. So as you recall from the last episode, we were talking about some of the questions you should be asking any syndicator that you are looking to invest with so that you are protecting your capital and making sure that you're going to have a good outcome, right? That is the whole idea. You want preservation of capital, you want your returns, and you want to be able to, what we are trying to do are double our money in five years allow our investors to own real estate without having to do any of the work and get the tax benefits. And that's really what we're driving at, right? And so to do all of those things, you should, and and to feel comfortable and confident doing those things with people like Ridgeline, then you should be asking certain questions. So again, follow along. Last week, you can start, you can listen to those. This week, we're just going to continue along. We're going to ask some questions, relatively short, episode this week, again, probably 10, 15 minutes and just a quick hitter so that you can get some of these questions, make sure they're in your tool bag when you are going out and looking for some investments that you can put your money into. All right. So let's get into it. The next thing that I've got on here is, do you hold an operating reserve for this property? If so, how much? All right. So an operating reserve is an amount of money that you or we just keep in our operations account, just like any business to have cash in the bank for whatever reason, right? So we have a line item on our budget, which is our capital expenses. And that's the amount that we typically will have that we are, you know, fixing the foundation, fixing the roof, fixing the parking lot, whatever it is that's coming out of that account. However, we also have an operational reserve. And that is recently what happened with a lot of properties. The interest rates were increasing and there's been a lot of bridge debt, which just means that floating rates on some of these properties. And a lot of operators had rate caps. I feel like I'm getting way in the weeds here, but they had rate caps on deals where as the interest rates were climbing, if you got a loan that was a 3% rate and then it increased with the rising interest rates, they would cap it at 5%. Okay. So now you went from your cash flows decreased by that 2% spread in the interest rate because now your interest that you're paying just went up. So if there is no money in the operating account to cover that, then you may have a problem with your budget, right? And so that's one reason to have. There are other plenty of other reasons to have operating reserves. If you have to bring on any contract services to fix an AC unit, right? It's not something that you had foreseen. Boom, you need that money there. So we typically keep about three quarters of operating expenses in the operations account. I'll have to go back and look at that, maybe three months, but yeah definitely have money in the account to cover any of those unforeseen expenses, right? It lets you sleep at night, operate better. Have you completed your appraisal and what was the value? It's a good question. Syndication, typically you're raising money for a single deal, like as it is coming up. And so as an operator, we'll go out, we'll have it under contract. And then once it's under contract, we are kind of raising money at that point saying, Hey, you know, we need a $5 million raise. So this is a good question. If there's already a property that's being presented to you, Sometimes we'll be talking to investors prior to having a deal and just saying, Hey, you know, if we found something like this, what would it look like for you? Do you have any capital to invest? You know, is this the type of deal that you want to get into? And this question would do you no good to ask at that time. But if there's an actual deal that's been presented to you, you want to know. 
And just as an example, we've got a deal in Atlanta that we are uh, closing on a no, like next month. And 176 unit deal, we've got it for 19.2, and the appraisal came back at 20 million. So we already have $800,000 in equity on that property. So it's fantastic to know. And that's a great question. If you're investing in that deal, you know that you just got an $800,000 bump in equity. We were all very excited. That was great. So it's a good question to ask. Another question is what kind of financing are you getting on this deal? That is a very nitty gritty question, right? And if you're not a finance person and you're not a debt person, you don't really know how that works. I don't know that this question is great for you, but to explain some of the different types of debt, maybe you'll go into it on another video, but there's bridge debt, which is kind of like a hard money loan if you're used to that on the single family side. And agency debt is like Fannie, Freddie, and that's long-term fixed rate sort of debt. And then there's like mezzanine debt or secondary. You can assume people's loans. I mean, there's all kinds of different ways that you can structure these deals. And so I guess the big thing or the big reason this would be important is if you're getting a floating interest rate on a deal, kind of like what I just talked about, I think on last episode about if the rates are increasing and you have a floating rate, then you need to make sure that the operator knows what to do when that happens, right? What kind of backstop do you have? What kind of plan do you have in place to battle rising interest rates. Okay, well, we bought a rate cap. All right, cool. So that means our rate's only ever going to go to 5%. We've underwritten for that. We know that that's a possibility and we are covering ourselves. Okay, great. Other than that, again, it's a very detailed, high-level question that if you're not working on this type of investment day in and day out, I don't know that it'd be a question that you would necessarily need to ask. Let's see. Next question. How long is hold time for this property and why? All right. So typically when you're looking at multifamily communities, the whole time that is targeted on these deals is anywhere from three to seven years, right? It depends on the market and what's happening and the cycle of the real estate market, but that's typical. The reason this is a good question is because it'll indicate to you as a limited partner or as an investor, like what the business plan is. If the person presenting you the opportunity says, Hey, look, this is a one-year turn. That's really a flip that may work. Like I just saw a deal the other day that was completely vacant and it was a hotel conversion. And so you may be getting into that deal and converting it from a hotel motel to an apartment complex, leasing the entire thing up and trying to get it stabilized within you know 12 to 18 months, depending on the repairs and how the conversion works. If it's already set up to do it, it may be fairly quick, right? And so that's a year. That's a flip. You're looking to exit that thing in one year. Boom, boom, boom. In and out. Typically, if you're buying the types of assets that we're looking at, it is a stabilized asset that is operating. And we're coming in, we're acquiring, we're doing a value add to it and a light value add. We're trying to find ways to increase the net operating income so that we increase the value. And then we're going to exit in year three to five, right? That's kind of typical. And so it'll give you an idea knowing the exit timeframe, what type of deal that it is that you're looking at. Happy to dive into that in more detail. If you have questions, shoot me a comment. You know, yeah, happy to go over all the different types of hold times and why some of them are valuable. Another one I didn't even mention is 10-year holds right now in opportunity zones are a fantastic investment because of the tax benefits you get from that. Again, another conversation for another time, but that's why a 10-year hold may be something that is being presented to you right now. So do you plan to refinance, get a supplemental loan or sell as your liquidation event? Okay. There are multiple ways to to get out of a deal or to have a liquidity event on multifamily, right? Or any asset that for that matter. But 
Specifically, we're here, we're talking about a refinance. So there's been a number of operators who go and they'll acquire an asset and they work to refinance the deal. They'll put it in the close with a short-term finance floating interest rate. And they know they need to refinance that thing out of an interest-only payment on year three, right? And if they don't do it by year three, then it goes to like a higher rate and principal and interest payments and it throws their cash flows all in a whack, right? So they got to refinance three years. And the whole idea is to get it up and running or do the value add and then pull capital out, pull equity out and repay investors, either get them out of the deal or to return capital and have a lower return going forward. So there's good reasons to do that. That's not something that we do. That's not what we really typically focus on, but that's one exit for investor capital. Supplemental loan is typically if you're doing an assumption, it is you're going to assume somebody's debt. And like I was looking at one today, it was a $10 million loan. We were looking at getting a $2 million supplemental so that we were at about 70% LTC or loan to cost, right? And so a supplemental is a smaller loan or a secondary loan that goes on top of the primary that you're assuming and then sell as your liquidity. So then obviously you can sell. That's another exit strategy. So that is the answer there. All right. Next question. What is your CapEx budget? So CapEx stands for capital expenditures. So yeah, if we had a deal that we're doing a 65% loan to cost on that $20 million total purchase in capital expenditures, we'd be going and getting a loan for $13 million. And our CapEx, part of that, we'd be doing draws from the bank to collect any of the capital for those budgeted items, right? That's what CapEx budget is. A secondary part of that is any of that for deferred maintenance. Deferred maintenance is anything that the prior owner maybe did not take care of. Could be, again, the roofs. It could be the plumbing leak that never got fixed. It could be the parking lot. It could be a number of those things, right? So it's good to distinguish between what is CapEx item for maybe improvements. Again, you've got legacy units, which means you've got a unit that was built in 1980 never got upgrades and it still has laminate or formica countertops. It has you know carpet, it has whatever it is. And you want to go in and change that to granite countertops with tile floors and da, 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 right? That's for improvements. And then deferred maintenance would be problems that have going on with the property that have not been addressed. Next one is who's going to do the actual work? Randall, are you going out? Are you swinging a hammer, man? Are you going to be the guy that's out there you know, with your truck and a bunch of guys and you're just going to be out there? No. Ask that question, but most likely any deal that you are working on that has scale and size, you're going to have a general contractor who goes out, they're walking the project and property at acquisition, so well in advance of closing, and they have a budget and they say, this is what we're going to do. This is how it's going to work. We're going to improve units two at a time. Every single month, we're going to do two turns, da, 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 right? That should be the response. If it's a smaller property and it is, you know, 30 units or something along those lines, you may find that it's going to be chucking a truck. You know, the guy's got a hammer and he's going out and he's fixing things and handyman's doing it. So it's good to know that you'll find that out as you're going along and asking this question. All right. Next question. Who's going to manage that renovation process on your team? Right. So typically construction management is not the GC. Construction management is somebody on the asset management team or the lead sponsors team. And that is part of being an asset manager. So it should be somebody either dedicated to that property as the asset manager or the lead sponsor if that's their property that they're working on, right? Definitely know the answer to that question because just like property managers, 
are there and they should be doing their job doesn't mean that they're doing it right or doesn't mean they're doing it the way that your business plan calls for and you need to be on top of them. So as the asset manager, we are constantly on top of our people and we are reviewing the construction bids and making sure that we're on budget. That is our responsibility. Okay. All right. And next one is same vein, same line is who is the asset manager on the deal and what is their experience? So you can hire third-party asset managers to come in and run your asset, just like you can hire property managers to do that. We don't do that. We in-house asset manage and we have people on our team who are experienced in doing that. And so it's good to know who is running the asset, right? They are the person who really is making the decisions day-to-day basis of what's going on there. So yes, definitely ask that question and know who's running it. And then let's see what happens if one of the KPs, which is key principles or sponsors fall ill or there is a death. So this is essentially a succession plan. You need to have an answer to this question because if the asset manager is the key sponsor or the key principal is running the asset, they know everything about it. They've been there. They've been running it. They've been implementing the business plan. And then all of a sudden they die. What is going to happen? Who's going to make the payments? Where's my distribution going to come from? We make sure that we're collecting rents. Know who that is. That would be in the operating agreement. There should be a person, a next in line. This is what's going to happen. Answer to that question. That's another 10 questions or so that you can ponder and think about and go over. If you have any questions or you want to dive into any of those a little bit deeper, please shoot me a comment and we will be happy to get to an answer for you. So always love having you on. Good chatting with you today and we will see you on the next episode. Surprisingly, most of the agents we speak with got into real estate hoping to gain passive income and become work optional. However, only one in five ever start investing. Most are simply too afraid to start. Once you get educated by listening to this show, you'll be able to overcome that fear and become the one in five who are finding financial freedom. Don't miss a single episode. If you want to stay up to date, the best way is to make sure you're subscribed. So if you haven't done that, go ahead and do it now. And we'll catch you on the next episode.